Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find me, well, here, for instance, (laughs) but you can also find me now on Twitter at EBR underscore VFR, so Evidence-Based Radio underscore Valley Free Radio, Um, and I'm hoping to do a fair amount of tweeting there, especially stories about visual matters that don't really work with, well, radio um, or podcasts or any of those uh, lovely uh, mediums that don't involve visuals. (laughs) So um, as always, you can also find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. Now, um, before we get really started tonight, I do want to note the passing of a few um, sort of really uh, stellar and amazing people from um, the world of science and technology. And so first of all, I want to note the passing of Katherine Johnson at 101 years old. And so uh, she was a ma- the NASA mathematician who was a pretty much a revolutionary trailblazer and was instrumental in uh, several early space flights. Uh, Her story is part of what was uh, dramatized in the film um, Hidden Figures. And if you haven't seen that movie, please, please make sure you do in some way, shape or form because it's a great movie. Um, And so, yeah. At NASA, we will never forget her courage and leadership and the milestones we could not have reached without her, said NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine. We will continue building on her legacy and work tirelessly to increase opportunities for everyone who has something to contribute toward the ongoing work of raising the bar of human potential. And just earlier today, uh, we learned that Freeman Dyson, a pioneer and visionary who was well known for his mathematical and physics work, as well as for some of his more whimsical ideas, including the Dyson sphere or uh, geodesic domes. And so um, he was way too much uh there was way too much in his life to talk about um if we wanted to talk about anything else tonight but i thought uh this was a nice little um bit to uh share and so he was apparently quite the letter writer and um those letters have been collected and published for your perusal um and so i just picked out one quote which i thought was really a nice quote and Um, kind of was indicative of who he was. Today I discovered a little theorem, which gave me some intense moments of pleasure. It is beautiful and fell into my hand like a jewel from the sky. And so, um, yeah, I just want to say rest in peace to these amazing giants of STEM. And so while we're kind of on the subject of death, I actually wanted to uh, talk to you about um, something that I did this week and let you know about another version of what this is. And so I want to talk to you for a few minutes about death cafes. 
And so as I mentioned, I went to the first one um, that I've ever been to earlier this week uh, down in Holyoke, and it was a great experience. Um, And so you may be asking, what the heck is a death cafe? Well, if you don't know, let me read you their sort of official blurb. A death cafe is a group directed discussion of death with no agenda, objectives, or themes. It is a discussion group rather than a grief support or counseling session. Our objective is to increase awareness of death from the perspective of helping people make the most of their finite lives. Light refreshments are provided and people are encouraged to bring a sweet treat to share. And so basically the idea is to have tea and treats and to talk about death. Um, And it's about normalizing our um, ability to talk about death. Uh, Americans especially are very, very good at not thinking about death um, until it's really, uh, you know, until you're actually confronted with it. And so then it's really hard and people have really hard times because death in, um, you know, in many modern societies, not just America. Um, And in fact, there have been death cafes all over the world um, in the last um, 10 or 20 years that they've been going on. Um, But it's just, it's a way in which to um, try and come to grips with how one deals with death, how one feels about death, and to also get, um, you know, the perspective of other people and to share things that you feel about it. Um, I was really, I had a really great time. Um, I was at a table full of people with very different views um, from mine. Most of them um, believe in the afterlife and uh, several of them believe in spirits and things like that. Um, And of course, you know, my very... um, sort of straightforward uh, materialist mind thinks all of that is, of course, not true. But um, it was actually kind of a nice thing to uh, interact with them and talk about these things. And in some ways, it's also a great way to exercise another uh, ability that we don't exercise enough of, which is uh, active listening and holding space for people um, who don't necessarily share the same ideas as you. And so, um, you know, this wasn't somewhere that uh, their view was impactful on me. And so there was no need for me to then to try and say, oh, well, really, what you mean is that this person, uh, you know, X, Y, or Z, reasonable explanation for why someone would think that they had uh, been in contact with a ghost or whatever. It just wasn't a place for that. It was just a place to talk and to share similarities and differences and to share wisdom, just human wisdom about things. And I found it really, really moving. And um, the people at my table were lovely. And um, pretty much everyone there thought that we should definitely do it again. Um, And there was a nice mix. Uh, It was really funny. Um, Some of the older folks were quite surprised that uh, there were younger folks in the room. (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, there was definitely a mix of ages. And so it's not just for people who are older. um, It's really for everyone. So, yeah. Um, And that reminds me, the next one that I know about is a death cafe on March 10th at 6 p.m. It's going to be at 100 Bigelow Street in Holyoke. Uh, That's the Massachusetts Green High Performance Computing Center. 
and it's sponsored by Western Mass Recovery Learning Community and Tapestry Health. Um, and so I will obviously post a, um, I will actually make sure that I tweet about this. Um, I might even go and make a Facebook post um, about it just because I know more people are still following me on Facebook. And um, yeah, I would definitely encourage people to um, do this and give it a shot. Um, I know that there actually is one, I believe, in Northampton that happens semi-regularly. And you can actually go to deathcafe.org and there's a listing and you can look up all of the ones that are um, in the region. So yeah, um, it's definitely a new movement, but I think it's an important one. Um, I know that I, when I was younger, didn't have a great experience, didn't have great experiences around dealing with death. Um, my parents were very protective of me around it and didn't give me the chance to kind of develop any kind of um, coping mechanisms or um, ability around it. And it wasn't their fault. They thought they were doing the best thing for me by protecting me from it. Um, but um, now I feel like it's really important for me to try and um, get a little more uh, perspective about it in my life. And so I found this to be a really um, wonderful and um, informative and educational experience. And so, um, yeah. Okay. So now let's, let's move on and let's get into the normal uh, stuff that we normally do uh, on a Friday evening or whenever you're listening to this, um, the stuff I normally talk about. And so unfortunately, uh, I feel that I have to start out with an update on the uh, COVID-19 virus and its potential spread within the United States. Now, right now, the important thing is still to not panic and to rely on trusted news sources, um, rather, frankly, than potentially the government or uh, mainstream news outlets, because, yeah, um, I am not uh, terribly impressed by the idea of Mike Pence being in Trump in uh, charge of anything, and especially in charge of uh, a possible pandemic is uh, a little terrifying, but, you know, we're going to just keep moving forward. Um, <laughs> and so I'll post links on Twitter, and I actually have done this already, um, a couple that are, uh, one of them is for a um, tracker, the outbreak um, tracking map uh, from Johns Hopkins University, and it's active and it's updating regularly. Um, and then there's also a um, website that is a good clearinghouse for uh, COVID-19 that I also um, tweeted out. And this is, I feel so silly saying this, um, and I would hope that none of you are doing this, but um, if please, if you like Corona beer, which I will make no, uh, I will not say anything either for or against Corona beer. I can't remember the last time I had one, so I don't really remember it, but um, please keep drinking it because it just makes us look silly um, when people avoid Corona beers because of the coronavirus. Um so anyways, <laughs> uh, I would say that I was surprised, but I'm not. I'm just saddened. Now, I won't lie and say that the U.S. will 
almost certainly come out of this unscathed. Uh, given the vast reduction in CDC and NIH funding and personnel, along with the fact that, well, we've never truly been prepared in this country to deal with an actual global pandemic, uh, though few countries in the world really are. And I do want to point out that um, the uh, World Health Organization has not yet declared this as an actual pandemic. Um, I am using it colloquially, not um, officially. And so um, I am not optimistic that it won't eventually become a pandemic. So I'm using the term um, just because of the uh, transmission rate. And I just think that with a global um, economy and global movement, it's going to be really hard not to um, have it turn into a pandemic, unfortunately. Um, you know, this is one of those sort of... Uh, we have all this wonderful, great technology and great um, ability to, you know, fly around the country and uh, fly around the world and move around the world. And unfortunately, some of that uh, comes back to us uh, in the form of nature wreaking havoc. Um, and so I am predicting, and don't hold me to this, obviously, it's just a prediction, uh, that we will see at least a moderate outbreak of the disease in the U.S. Now, the symptoms of the disease are basically the same as any other flu, fever, coughing, shortness of breath, and in severe cases, pneumonia. Now, while this doesn't necessarily sound that dangerous, any infection of this sort can be deadly. In fact, any medical procedure or any kind of infection or, um, you know, injury, anything actually can in, you know, certain cases be deadly. And so we always have to be careful about these things. Um, and it's especially uh, true of those who are already immunocompromised or those with pre-existing conditions, especially heart disease. Um, and so we now know for instance, that asymptomatic patients can be infectious, which means that you can have it and not know that you have it and be shedding virus and infecting other people without either of you ever knowing that the other person had it. Um, and so we now know that there has been person-to-person -person transmissions in the U.S. Um, that's been true for a while, but we've had the first case of a community transmission, uh, which has been reported out of California this week. And as we talked about last week, despite it having a relatively low fatality rate compared to other novel coronavirus outbreaks, COVID-19 is much more dangerous than the seasonal flu, which already kills a large number of people each year. And so to put this in perspective, the low estimate for those affected by seasonal flu this year is 29 million people. If those people had been infected with COVID-19 instead of the seasonal flu, 580,000 of them would be um, would have died, rather than the 16,000, which is the low estimate for those who have died from uh, seasonal flu this year. So that is a large difference in um, fatality rates, because as we know... Um, Oh dear, this has been a hard week. Uh, there is a difference in the mortality rate with COVID-19 hovering at about 2 or 2.3% and the seasonal flu this year being at about 0.01%. Okay, um, we're just going to keep plunging on because 
it's been a it's been a rough week. Um, and I promise there there's other just regular fun stories after we talk about this for another few minutes. And so, um, how does the coronavirus kill someone? The experience with other respiratory viruses was suggested as a combination of the virus doing damage to the airways, secondary infections, and the interplay with the host immune response, said Erica S. Shinoy, an infectious disease specialist at Massachusetts General Hospital. Now, in some patients, the virus might actually cause what is a, uh, referred to as a cytokine storm. If the virus replicates very quickly, before your body has a chance to try and prevent it with an immune response, or if the immune response comes in too late, then it can't control the virus and starts going berserk, said Anthony Fair, a virologist at the University of Kansas. And so basically what happens is that not only is the virus attacking you, but then your own immune system starts attacking itself because it doesn't know what's going on and it just starts to go berserk and you go downhill very fast. Um, And that's actually what they think happened with the uh, Spanish influenza, um, which is, of course, not from Spain. And uh, I do like the fact that they are trying, finally, uh, in 2020, to get away from um, naming things after places, uh, because it is something that ends up becoming a stigma. And so, um, you know, even with things like Ebola, Ebola is a river near where the first outbreak was um, found. And so um, I like that they're calling it COVID-19, though I have heard some other Uh, other suggestions that I personally have enjoyed, um, but we won't talk about that uh, because this is actually a very serious uh, thing. And I don't want to downplay the fact that, you know, actual human beings are dying uh, from this disease. And, um, you know, gallows humor is something that I appreciate very much. Uh, I am very um, much someone who would prefer to deal with things with a joke, but I think that it's also important to acknowledge that real people are dying and um, real people will continue to die and be affected by this. And so um, it does require a bit of somberness. Uh, And so anyways, getting back to um, the actual what happens to your body when you're infected. uh, So you can also have Uh, we know that it does damage to the lungs. And so if you have sufficient amount of damage to the lungs, it can actually cause the tissue to stiffen. And that decreases the ability of the infected person to breathe, which is why there's the shortness of breath issue. And so that leads to them being able, less able to take in oxygen. And so of course, this in turn puts a strain on all of the other um, you know, the rest of your body, the all of your other organs need that oxygen. And if you can't get enough oxygen, then your body starts again to shut down. And so um, that's how it can um, cause death. Now, again, this is not to panic anyone, but it's important to know the facts and to know what you can do. And so right now, the advice is the exact same as it would be for any other infectious disease. Uh, avoid close contact with the sick, especially those who have been uh, in areas that have had large outbreaks um, or even people who have been in areas that have small outbreaks. Uh, stay home if you are sick. Now, I know that this is a tough one for many people, and I could spend hours uh, 
in an aside on the stupidity of not having paid sick leave and universal health care, not only from a you know, humanitarian standpoint, but also from a business perspective as well. Um, you know, just because I'm an anti-capitalist doesn't mean I don't understand capitalist forces. Uh, but again, anywho, <laughs> uh, back to the list of what you can do. Cover your mouth and nose when sneezing, obviously. Now, I find the best way to do this is to sneeze into the crook of your arm. Uh, but if not, try to have tissues or napkins available and immediately dispose of them. That's actually why I favor the sleeve method, honestly, because if there isn't a ready waste receptacle, many people, including myself, will put the tissue in their pocket and you'll end up touching it again uh, later. And you might still not be around a receptacle that you can put it into because... Um, I found that there's a lot less uh, garbage cans out around in the world than there used to be. And I know that that's, there are various reasons for that, but um, even in places around where uh, I tend to find myself, I just, you know, I think that it's, there are places where you just can't find somewhere to throw it away. And so uh, sleeve is the best option if you don't have uh, ready access to that because you don't want to keep touching it and having it in your possession. Um, and so then you should clean your hands with soap and water for at least 20 seconds every time you, you wash your hands. And now you don't need fancy antibacterial soap if you're taking the time to wash your hands for the full 20 seconds. Now, I've been working on doing that, and it seems like an eternity. I mean, it does. I'm not going to lie. It just seems like an eternity when you first start. It still kind of feels like an eternity to me. But it's a small price to pay for not getting sick. And also remember to clean under your fingernails if you have fingernails uh, like I do, because um, I think sometimes people forget that. Now, you could also use an alcohol-based hand rub if no soap and water are available, but I would start with soap and water for the 20 seconds as a first choice. Uh, there's still been some back and forth on uh, whether alcohol-based hand rubs have other issues uh, other than um, that can cause uh, issues. And so, you know, if you have access to soap and water, that's the first choice as far as I'm concerned. Um, and that's the first choice that, you know, most people uh, in healthcare would suggest. Now, of course, comes avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. And I know that this one is, again, really tough. I rub my eyes a lot, um, and a lot of us have nervous tics that involve touching our faces. Um, and so, uh, yeah, that's definitely a hard one. But again, try your best because, of course, you have a bunch of mucous membranes um, in your uh, face that are places where you can easily transfer something from your hand into your body through, um, you know, your eyes or your mouth um, or your nose. That's places where viruses tend to get in to you. Now, there's one thing that probably won't help, and that is wearing a typical surgical mask, uh, as many people are wont to do when they go out and about. Now, if you have a uh, if you are sick, then you should wear a surgical mask. Um, but there's no evidence to suggest that wearing a mask outside of a healthcare setting actually protects you from being infected. 
And of course, uh, the reason I say that if you're sick, you should probably wear one is because regular surgical masks are actually meant to prevent your breath from contaminating a room, not the other way around. Uh, if nothing else, and you really want to wear one, uh, try wearing it the quote unquote wrong way out um, so that it's a little bit more protective potentially. We don't really know how the coronavirus is being transmitted from person to person because no one has done the noise studies that stimulate the cough. Big droplets that land three to six feet away from a person or the little droplets that can travel long distances and in air handling systems, notes Bruce Ribner, MD, medical director of the Serious Communicable Diseases Unit at Emory University Hospital. So we have to use what we know about other coronaviruses and influenza when it comes to this disease. And so it seems likely, given the large amount of healthcare workers who have been infected, that a respirator is needed when in contact with carriers of the virus in order to have the maximal amount of protection. Now, this is, of course, an untenable solution for the vast majority of us to do all day, every day. And so sticking to the basics that we've talked about can go a long way to staying healthy. They're not foolproof, but good hygiene is definitely a help. Now, Michael T. Osterholm, Regents Professor and Director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota, along with Mark Olshanker, a writer and documentary filmmaker. Um, they just made a film together. That's why partially this is uh, that pair. And so they had an op-ed in the Washington Post recently. Uh, and in, as an aside, uh, it's actually the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy, which is the um, trusted news source that I have uh, tweeted out. And so uh, Dr. Osterholm is very well known in um, the infectious disease community. And so they say, in a very real sense, what happens to our healthcare workers will be the metric of how we respond to this unfolding crisis. If we don't do all we can to protect them, they will quickly transition from providers to patients, further stressing already overburdened facilities. We are no more prepared to deal with the rapid increase in coronavirus patients needing hospitalization in the United States than in China. They finished their piece noting that, in terms of minimizing illness and death, this, uh, providing proper supplies for healthcare workers, will be more important than any border closing, airport screening, or quarantine, and it is no less than our frontline warriors deserve. And part of that is that um, they note that there will probably be a shortage of the respirators needed, um, and that there are already shortages in hospitals, um, because hospitals don't really have places to stockpile these sorts of things, and generally don't need to stockpile these sorts of things. And so, um, yeah, it's going to be a little bit hard to get people the supplies they need. And so um, they're really kind of pointing at the government to say, you need to start working on this. Now, of course, I will keep updating as things progress. And hopefully, uh, despite <laughs> all of our misgivings, uh, we will make it out only marginally uh, scathed. Okay. So uh, it is that time when we should take a break, but uh, we will come back and we will then go back to our normal sort of uh, our normal programming. And so please do hang on for just a moment.
Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Hey everyone, DJ Man of Nowhere here. Tune in to our show Arts Electronica, dedicated to downtempo, ambient, electronic and house music, but also techno and trance with a hint of progressive and deep house, dubstep and experimental. We love all the music wizards here that bring to life their poetry throughout their sound spaces, soundscapes and sound sculptures. Art Electronica goes live on Saturdays at midnight to 2 a.m. Sunday morning. Check us out. After only three months, Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, and South Carolina are in the rear view, and it's time for the big show. March 3rd is Super Tuesday, and civil politics will be live on the air as the results come in. Join our panel as we talk about what's happening and what we should look out for. Tuesday, March 3rd, 9 p.m., right here on VFR. There's no telling how this will go, so let's find out together. I never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old the for media flu. media is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Hi, I'm Mark Sherry. I'm Ed Malachowski. And I'm Ace Housethor, and we're some of the hosts for the New Music Alliance Radio Hour, which goes up every Thursday from 6 to 7 p.m. We're going to focus on presenting some of the best original music to come from the Western New England area, both past and present. In addition to myself and Ace and Mark, we have Mark Beauvais, David Sokol, and Betsy Cordes for the ride. And as always, keep, keep on rocking. Every 10 years, the census comes along, and it seems like everyone I know always asks the same two questions. What is the census, and why does it even matter? Let me give it to you straight. The census counts every single person living in America. An accurate count of our community tells us where there are more people, and where there are more people, there are more needs. Our participation could impact how public funding flows to our schools, health clinics, senior care, job training, and housing. It even determines our congressional representation. I don't know about you, but it sure sounds like the census matters to me. This year, take a little time for the 2020 census. You can complete it online, by phone, or by mail, and make sure you count everybody you live with. Your mama, daddy, sweetheart, babies, roommates, everyone. This chance only comes every 10 years, so let's step up and be counted. Shape your future. Start here. Learn more at 2020census.gov. Paid for by U.S. Census Bureau. Do you love Latin music? Then check out Ritmo Latino. Tune in to WXOJ on Sunday evenings from 6 to 7 p.m. I'm your host, Kat, and I'll be playing a mix of styles from around the world, old school to new. Listen for local talent and upcoming events in the Latino community. 
So finish out your weekend with Latin style. Ritmo Latino, Sundays, 6 to 7 p.m. here on WXOJLP 103.3 FM. Okay, we are back. And as promised, we are going to leave behind uh, all of the non-regular programming and get back to regular programming. So the first thing I want to talk about is a theory that has been kind of hotly debated for years in uh, certain scientific circles. And it is the idea that humans may or may not uh, have had a genetic bottleneck some 70,000 years ago that drastically reduced populations living outside of Africa. It's long been debated that the eruption 74,000 years ago of the Tuba supervolcano located in Indonesia caused drastic climate change and with it a drastic decline in human populations. The debate has been fueled by evidence that is contradictory between archaeological and anthropological remains on the one hand and DNA analysis on the other. According to the archaeological and anthropological records, humans reached the Levant by 200,000 years ago, moved into the Arabian Peninsula by around 85,000 years ago, and as we talked about last week, reached Australia around 65,000 years ago. There's just one little problem. DNA evidence suggests that the ancestors of modern Africans and non-African people branched off from a common ancestor around 70,000 years ago. So there is some sort of disconformity in the data. Some paleoanthropologists have suggested that the volcano's eruption led to a drastic decrease in human populations outside of Africa, and thus the loss of much of those earlier peoples from the genetic heritage of modern humans. It's a good story, but it's been one that's been really lacking kind of solid evidence ever since it was proposed. And recent archaeological finds further support the idea that humans were, in fact, not largely wiped out, but rather survived and adapted to new environmental conditions. Which might just be a good sign that at least some of us will survive the coming uh, global warming crisis. The circumstantial evidence is rather damning uh, for the fact that Uh, this might have had a giant impact, which is why, you know, it makes sense to argue. So ash from the volcanic eruption, uh, which is called the Younger Toba Tuff, or YTT, Um, Tuff is kind of one of those, um, it's a product of of volcanic eruptions. It's kind of like pumice. Um, Tuff is a kind of rock. And so, uh, Layers of that are found as far away as Tanzania, which is some 4,600 miles away from the volcano's center. And volcanologists have rated the volcanic explosivity of the eruption at an 8 on a 1 to 8 scale (laughs) and have compared it to that of the Yellowstone supervolcano's eruption 630,000 years ago. They also note that billions of tons of sulfur dioxide and other chemicals would have led to several years of volcanic winter at a bare minimum. Ice cores from Greenland suggest a dramatic cooling period that lasted for a thousand years. 
But even that's a bit disputed. Some researchers say that this may have been caused by other environmental factors rather than the eruption. In addition, again, there's a big issue when looking at the fossil and archaeological records. Or in counterpoint, I should say, there's a big issue when looking at the fossil and archaeological records. Because all of that suggests that we really should have seen a big impact. But when we actually look for that impact, we don't find it. The same species are found above and below the ash layer in sediments from Lake Malawi in East Africa, which of course suggests that the volcano didn't have a significant impact on the area. And new data from the Daba locality situated on the banks of the Middle San River in Madhya Pradesh, northern India, and comprised of three nearby localities, uh, the data on lithic artifacts found at these sites suggests continuous occupation of the site, located in an important part of the diaspora route. Um, and so humans would have been traveling out of the Middle East and through um, Eurasia on their way to uh, Oceania. And so the paper notes that the Daba localities together provide evidence of long-term human occupation spanning the last approximately 80,000 years. Occupation spans the Toba eruption and the stone tool industry shows no significant change in technology until the introduction of microlithic technology around 48,000 years ago. The lithic industry from Daba strongly resembles Middle Stone Age stone tools assemblages from Africa, Arabia, and Australia, here interpreted as the product of Homo sapiens as they dispersed eastward out of Africa. And so the team dug step trenches, which show various soil layers and mark a progression of stone tool development and occupation of the site around the river. Dating was done using infrared-stimulated luminescence, which dates feldspar in soils around the artifacts. And this led to results that suggest that the oldest stone tools at Daba are between 75,000 and 82,000 years old, which means that humans were almost certainly living in the area before the Toba eruption. On the other side of the tough layer deposited by the Toba eruption, and that was dated with using argon uh, isotope dating or argon-argon dating, um, and it places it between 74,000 and 76,000 years ago. Now, there is some overlap there, obviously, but it's all within sort of the error bars of this dating. And so uh, they found that the tools are very much similar to those found in lower deposits and show that the lithic toolkit of the inhabitants of this region did not change for another 34,000 thousand years when they were replaced by a different lithic technology that focused on microblades. In addition, the tools found in the area are quite similar to those being used by the first peoples to move out of Africa, again towards Eurasia and Oceania. They consist of sharp flakes, blades, and scrapers made using stone napping techniques referred to as the levelos technique. Now, of course, there's no suggestion that there was no impact on the environment and people living at the time of the eruption. Rather, it suggests that humans were able to adapt and continued to thrive throughout the period. It also means there's still a disconnect between the archaeological 
and genetic evidence, which does require further study. All right, let's talk now uh, about something that's a little further uh, towards us in uh, time. And um, this is just a short story, but I thought it was kind of interesting because it's been, it's one of those things that a lot of people are talking about right now. So let's talk about the realities of uh, some actual Paleolithic diets. Um, So obviously, in case you weren't sure, uh, the quote unquote paleo diet that your friend has been raving about is actually not what ancient uh, Paleolithic people would have eaten and isn't probably all that healthy for them in the long run and uh, certainly wouldn't have been for Paleolithic people. Uh, You'll note that modern humans have much longer lifespans in general than our Neolithic ancestors. And of course, that is for a variety of non-diet related reasons, but also diet uh, does contribute to that. And so it turns out that people living in Northern Europe, uh, in Neolithic times, it turns out their food was actually laced with shocking amounts of heavy metals. A new study of meals eaten by early people living in what is now northern Norway around 8,000 years ago had concentrations up to 22 times higher than those allowed in modern foods, uh, including lead and cadmium uh, with mercury as well. We were greatly surprised by the levels of contamination, said Hans-Peter Blankholm, an archaeologist at the Arctic University of Norway who led the new study. It shows that food taken from the sea, which would have constituted some portion of the population's diet, was tainted with deadly toxins. The team looked at fragments of bone from Atlantic cod and harp seals found in middens from Stone Age settlements in the Varanger Peninsula above the Arctic Circle. They used a dentist drill to obtain samples which were tested for contamination. They found that the cod bones had 22 times more cadmium and three to four times more lead than is now deemed safe. The seals had similar levels of lead and 15 times more cadmium. Now, the mercury was within modern limits, but was still high because modern limits are high. Uh, It was almost as high as Arctic fish today. Now, the researchers note that the toxic toxin levels are caused uh, by the fact that marine food chains have high levels of bioaccumulation, which means that as the animals eat and they go up the food chain, those uh, toxins bioaccumulate in uh, greater and greater amounts. And then when humans eat the sort of top predators, uh, they get the most of uh, the pollutants that those predators had gotten from all the other uh, things that had been eaten up the food chain. And so uh, that's a big issue is that the pollutants build up in the tissue of uh, marine creatures. High cadmium levels are carcinogenic, obviously, uh, and cause kidney, liver, and lung disease, and especially affect children and pregnant women. They suggest that the source of these heavy metals, uh, which nowadays are more associated with things like heavy industry, may have been transported into the ocean due to climate change. Rapid warming and sea level rise around 10,000 years ago might have caused erosion of soils containing large concentrations of the metals. The researchers note that this information might also be useful in comparing and predicting seafood contamination in the future by having a baseline uh, of which to compare it against. 
Okay. So uh, let us now uh, move again slightly, but uh, focus on pretty much the same thing. So new research is also looking at the diet of ancient inhabitants of the Sahara Desert. At the Takarkori Rock Shelter in southwestern Libya, there is a nearly 5,000-year span worth of fossilized food remains, which show a transition from a mostly fish diet to one that featured more mammals like sheep and cattle. Around 11,000 years ago, the Sahara was actually a lush green savanna with lakes, rivers, wetlands, and featured hippos and giraffes and uh, elephants and was very lush and verdant. It's only between 4,500 years ago and 8,000 years ago that it began to turn into the desert that we know today. Throughout the this time, humans occupied the rock shelter area and left us a wonderful record of their meals. Researchers from Belgium and Italy looked at over 17,000 animal remains, which showed cuts and burns, which are, of course, signs that they were cooked and eaten by hunter-gatherers in the distant past. Savino di Lernia at Sapienza University of Rome and his colleagues found that in the oldest layers, catfish and tilapia made up 90% of the diets of the humans living there, starting around 10,000 years ago. 19% was made up of mammals, with birds, mollusks, turtles, and other such things rounding out the rest of the diet. But as of 4,650 to 5,900 years ago, only about 48% was from fish species, with the majority now being from domesticated animals such as sheep, goats, and cattle. All of the other finds are surface finds, just one layer, one period, one event, whereas what we have here is a 5,000-year sequence with a lot of bones, so that makes it special, bioarchaeologist Wim van Nier, a co-author of the study, wrote. The amount of fish is decreasing throughout time, and the contribution of mammals increases, showing that people at Takarkori focused gradually more on hunting and livestock keeping, the authors write. But, they add, it is unclear if this was an intentional process or if this shift could be related to increasing aridity, which made the environment less favorable for fish. And so they found that the tilapia were the first to go. Um, and in fact, they went in two waves with the with a less hardy species going first and then a more hardy species going second. Um, and then uh, they found that catfish did persist for another time for another sort of time. Um, and they suspect that's because they're better adapted to warm, shallow waters, which would, of course, most likely have dominated the transition period period as the area dried out. We know from earlier work that around 6,400 years ago, the original residents of Tekarkori, called the late Akakis hunter-gatherers, were replaced by people employing early agricultural practices. At the time, we begin to see signs of cultivated grasses and herds of domesticated Barbary sheep. The naturally mummified remains of Neolithic pastoralists have also been discovered at the site, and the top layers are composed of dung left by nomadic herders. There are not a whole lot of sites like 
Tekakori that showed the transition and the way people were eating in this period of dramatic landscape change, University of Oslo archaeologist David Wright, who was not involved in the study, noted. It is just one piece of the puzzle, but an important one as we wrestle with understanding how people can adapt to extreme forms of climate change. You might have noticed a theme tonight. Uh, <laughs> and so uh, we're going to do one more, uh, and then we will probably have to wrap up for tonight. Let's hit on again one more. New evidence suggests that the amazing cities of Angkor Wat and Ta Prom uh, may never have been built if not for an engineering disaster. By the end of the 10th century, the Khmer, em the Khmer Empire controlled much of Southeast Asia. But there were political feuds and unclear rules of succession, and this led to a crisis of power. Jayavaraman IV, a grandson of the previous king, made his stand by moving in the 920s to a new site and setting up a capital at Koh Kher, some 75 miles to the northeast of the traditional seat of power at Angkor. However, after his son and successor were killed, the next Khmer king moved back to Angkor and reestablished it as the capital of the kingdom. Now, what was once seen as simple political jockeying may in fact have had another major cause. It's a very interesting period in Angkorian history, where it looks like you've got serious competition for rulership, says Miriam Stark, director of the Center for Southeast Asian Studies at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. Now, a new study suggests that part of the move may have been triggered by the collapse of a critical water reservoir that allowed large-scale agriculture in the area around Koh Kher. It provides clues as to what's going on in the empire during that time, says Sarah Klassen, director of the Co-Care Archaeological Project and a postdoctoral researcher at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. The Khmer Empire ruled the area from the beginning of the 19th, the 9th century until it began to fade away beginning in the 14th century. Much of our knowledge of the empire is based on inscriptions from temple structures. Unfortunately, the area is much less well-studied than other comparable empires like Egypt or the Maya. Um, part of this is that, you know, it was buried in the jungle for many years, and obviously uh, Southeast Asia has had a um, interesting and um, fraught history in the last uh, half of the half century, and so um, doing archaeological work there is um, a little more fraught sometimes, I think, and just a lot of it was that, unfortunately, people weren't as impressed by things in the East so much. And there were other places in the East that were already known about that um, it just didn't get the kind of um, scholar interest that other places did. And I, I'm hoping, um, and it seems to be true, that that's starting to change. And so Klassen and her colleagues are trying to fill in some of the gaps in our knowledge using modern archaeological techniques. They completed LIDAR surveys, surveys in 2012 at both Kokare and Angkor, which mapped above-ground ruins, including an area near one of the large reservoirs created by the Khmer people for water management that featured a chute, which would have let excess water discharge downstream towards a river. A broken dike had been identified in the area in 2015. 
had been invited in the area. And in 2015, the team excavated parts of that chute area. In 2016, using ground-penetrating radar, they were able to see that the blocks built to limit the outflow of the water had eroded. They were, there were extreme flows of water leading into the dike, and the chute wasn't large enough to handle that, and the whole thing broke, Klassen says. Now, they caution that they can't pinpoint exactly when the chute failed, but they believe it could have been as soon as the first or second rainy season after the reservoir had filled. That would have been right around the time when, pol when political control was shifting back to Angkor, Klassen says. So while we can't be sure if the collapse happened before the move back to Angkor or after, it does show that there was little desire to repair the damage or to find a way to work around this problem. The rulers at CoCare most likely could have fixed the problem if they had had the resources or interest in doing the job. People's interest in the area seems not to have been strong enough, and they simply returned to Angkor, uh, where the water, water management system sustained a flourishing, a flourishing city for hundreds of years. Now, the need for water management is actually intense in the area. The monsoon weather patterns mean that at various times of year, there is either a vast amount of water available or very little. Maintaining reservoirs was vital, especially as the people of the land had turned to growing rice. And once Rajendravaman II moved the capital back to Angkor after the death of Harshavarman II in 944, he began a campaign of both expanding the empire and building temples in the Angkor area. As the empire grew in the next few hundred years, each new king built more temples. Angkor Wat was built in the 12th century. Bayan, Ta Prom, and other temples in the area were built later by one of the most important kings of the empire, Jayavarman VII. However, despite the site having had extensive and well-maintained water management, the system was not enough to keep up with a period of extended drought in the late 1300s, which was followed by flooding later in the century. Because the water systems were so complex and interconnected, they were eventually too much for the people to maintain, and the system collapsed. And unfortunately, therefore, the empire collapsed. And that is all we have for it tonight. So uh, please come back next week. Um, I will... Uh, among other things, be talking about the first data from the Mars InSight rover. Uh, so that would be super interesting, I hope. And I will uh, be back then. All right. Have a good night. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.